0: Now, just before we start, I have a special announcement. It's a new Kilkenomics X event. That means it's in Dublin, not in Kilkenny. It's on the 13th of October, and it features Michael Lewis, the author of The Big Short, Flash Boys, Moneyball. He's talking to me in St. Patrick's Cathedral about his new book, which is called Going Infinite. And it is the story of Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam Bankman-Fried, you will know, was the chief executive of FTX, the crypto exchange that went spectacularly bust around this time last year. Now, before this guy was 30, he had become the world's youngest billionaire, making a fortune on crypto. Now, chief executives, celebrities, world leaders, they were all vying for his time. At one point, he considered paying off the entire national debt of the Bahamas so that he could take his business there. And then it all fell apart. And Michael Lewis was there when it happened, having got to know SBF, as he was called, during his epic rise. Now, this new book, Going Infinite, I'm reading it right now, tells a story like no other, taking you through the mind-bending trajectory of a character who never liked the rules and was allowed to play by his own. So if you're interested in economics, finance, crypto, boom busts, legal trials, what happens when companies rise dramatically and then fall to the ground, this is the gig for you. And it's an amazing story. So, The gig is Michael Lewis, Talking to Myself, David McWilliams, 13th of October, a Friday night, 8pm, St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. And the tickets are at kilconomics.com, and they come with a book. Do not miss this event. understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing there? It is podcast time. John and I, the two oldest uh, rockers in town, were at New Order the other night. (laughs) Shoegazing. Shoegazing, shoegazing. We are going to go to Manchester to talk about British politics today. We're going to do all Britain today. Okay, John? Good, good, good. But good. speaking of Manchester, it was Salford's Finest, New Order. Oh, man. Do you know
2: what, Mac? I know you were at the gig. I was at the gig. We were in different places. I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. But there there was a moment in that where Bernard Summer, in fairness, Bernard, great gig. He's put on a bit of weight. He's the same age as her. Like, like a the pair of
1: years. us. Yeah.
2: But it, it was like a dad grabbing the mic. Uh, in a wedding and not giving it back there was there was a moment in the gig when it was a bit like that and he was walking around the stage because he can't quite dance
0: well I mean the funniest thing New Order Bernard Summers I've seen them a few times right yeah it's always been a problem that he can't keep a note no no he can't he can't keep a note so after a while if the singer can't sing yeah the music has to take over but I mean what I did like there were some tuning problems Yeah, yeah 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 but you know the guy's written all these great songs, so so respect to him. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. But it was very is interesting the way they ended with three Joy Division songs. Yeah. And you had the picture of Ian Curtis at the very, yeah, very yeah, end. Yeah. And this is forever Joy Division. This is John and I talking about music from our youth, Joy Division. I remember initially listening to Joy Division, was it, was it 1980? It was a long, long time oh, ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. A long, long time ago. And then, of course, after Ian Curtis died... Bernard Summer takes over and New Order come in. And I mean, Peter Hook on the bass, he wasn't there the other night. Wasn't there, no. But I mean, they are a, an amazing band. Oh, Incredible. But do you know what I found interesting? When John's I... actually doing the dancing. to like the building <laughs> shelf dancing, right? That is <laughs> Blue Monday. But remember but, when you heard Blue Monday for the first time? It was like you were just playing it there. It was like so music rock from rock outer it. space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like we'd be sitting, we'd be at Wesley, <laughs> and then suddenly this music came on. It was wasn't like, great dance music. It has to be said. But it was the first electronic music that was actually accessible. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. you know, this created rave culture. This created the whole dance. Not so much creative, but if I uh, did you ever go to the hacienda in Manchester? No, never did. I went once, right? The hacienda in Manchester was Is that the Oaks. The club <laughs> <It> was <laughs> not me boxing now. But it was an unbelievable club. Unbelievable yeah. club. Again, it was so different to anything, of course, anything that ever existed in Ireland. Yeah. And that that was, I think it was New Order financed the whole thing, as far as I remember. I, I can remember. Was his name Wilson? Was Wilson, the producer? Yeah, 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 yeah. But we are now
2: talking music. We're going to be talking Britain, but John. But but it was interesting when I was thinking about at the gig, and it kind of it made me smile. Was looking at New Order, old fellas like like us, cranking it out. Then last weekend you also had you two in Vegas, cranking, yeah, cranking, out, cranking which, it out. Which, by all accounts, is an amazing show and yeah, I'd love to yeah, go to it. Absolutely. But then you also have, you know, a couple of weeks ago and coming out, I think later this month, is Rolling Stones. You have those fellas are are 80, you know, 80 the Stones plus. Stones are 80. Yes. Yeah, yes. 80 plus. And it sounds fantastic. And what I was thinking is like, there's all these owl fellas cranking it out with soul, with feeling. You know, and it's authentic. And in this kind of I've known about you, but over the last while I've been hearing stuff and reading loads of stuff about AI and the new AI universe that we're going to inhabit. But we're in
0: apparently. we yes. just, yes. just, yes. just we're just we're just it's near the like basement. It's like the new colonialization. <laughs> we have
2: no choice. It has taken us over. But in all of that, you had the owl fellas giving us And owl ones. Given it sucks,
0: and I just thought, I just thought it was great. I just really well, I mean, this it. is this is this is you know, the, the, we still have something to say. Well, exactly, three chords of the truth, John. This is the <laughs> podcast is it's all about. That's it. It's the economics version <laughs> of three chords and the truth. Three interest rates and the crash. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and the truth. But uh, we're going to talk today about the UK. We're going to go to Manchester because the Tories have had their, you know annual shindig, which looks like a freak show. Yes. You actually looked at it, you would actually, you would <laughs> act, if, you, is back. if you saw them on one side of the street, you would actually take your children and usher them onto the other side yeah. of the street. I mean, yeah. they're such a freak. You're right, Liz Truss is back. They have no shame. This is yeah. the woman who bankrupted Britain in 47 days, which is less than it took Brian Clough to get sacked from Leeds United. Okay.
2: <laughs> There's always football there somewhere. <laughs> okay.
0: Now, now that we have accused New Order of being our lads, let's also... <laughs> Take the long lens and look at Brexit. Okay, <laughs> give it a little bit of breathing space. Okay, which is a—it's eight years since Brexit. Eight, eight years. years since the yeah. vote. Okay, which they were convul- long eight years. convulsed the UK. <laughs> Let us go to Manchester to the Tory Party conference and talk to Peter Foster of the FT, who's just written a brilliant book, John, called "What Went Wrong with Brexit and What We Can Do About It." Okay, so it's obviously yeah. one of these laments for the UK. Fascinating book. Great, great detail. Let's just go to Manchester and talk to Peter. Now, when a book comes out called What Went Wrong With Brexit and What We Can Do About It, our ears perk up because it is, bizarrely, eight years since the Brexit vote. The author of that book, Peter Foster of the Financial Times, is on the line from what it looks like a very... I was going to say swanky, but it looks like a premier in in Manchester. The FT have obviously the FT have obviously not forking out for, for their journalists at the Tory Party Conference. You are in Manchester, Peter, at the Tory Party Conference. How are you? Good to see
3: you. Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's all go at the Tory Party Conference. There's a slight sort of fander regime feel about the whole thing. Remember, last year it was the Liz Truss implosion. This year, of course, Liz Truss back in the room making another speech about how she should fix the economy. No shame there. Uh, Nigel Farage knocking around the place, and Rishi Sunak trying to reboot what remains of the Tory party message. Everyone's, you know, talking about whether he's going to can this HS2 high-speed railway, which the costs have got out of control on. Uh, everyone knows he is going to can it, and you know, it's waiting to see what he's going to do with some of the goodies that might fall out the back of canning it. You know, uh, uh, in terms of you know a bus here and a pothole fixed there.
0: But it's actually, actually the interesting thing, Peter, you say that kind of cynically, but it, it kind of seems to have been reduced to that. I was looking at leveling up. So if you remember, like there was always trickle down was the great uh, Thatcherite expression. And then of course Johnson comes, oh, that doesn't work. Let's go leveling up, right? And it does seem to be like a goodie bag for places in the north of England that voted Tory and the and the, uh, and the West Midlands that voted Tory. Is that what levelling up is? You take money from here, you give it to there. So you Know
3: that's that is what leveling up has come down to because actually, you know, there have been a north south divide in the UK since the Roman times. If you look at a scatter plot of Roman villas, there's more in the south than in the north, right? Long before William the Conqueror ravaged the north, right? That you know, the, the, the south, if you draw a line from the Humber uh, to the Severn estuary, it's richer down south than it is up north. And so, Boris Johnson won a 90 seat majority, he said he was going to level up. Fix some of those problems that were created. The trouble is, it takes billions of pounds and decades to actually, you know, shrink what the, you know the spatial economic inequalities yeah. as they as yeah, they yeah. as they. What the do the Romans called. ever do for us? Well, well, indeed. But actually, there was an example this week of uh, exactly the problem. So they announced a new towns fund, which was going to be uh, twenty million pounds for ten years for fifty-five towns. Now, you know, my contacts in Wye were saying the actual boffins in the treasury were super against this because just dishing out 20 million pounds to 55 towns you know what you actually need to do is work out where the money is going to be most productively spent not just dish it out in a in a flat rate way off the back of a fag packet make it really hard you know it, that has been a kind of symptom of the last Five, you know, your listeners may wonder, you know, what what has gone wrong with Britain? Well, one of the things that's gone wrong is that there's just been an absence of cogent, coherent policymaking, and there's just been a succession of flip flops and knee jerk pots for this and pots for that. If you run a local council in England at the moment, you're you you do not know where to turn to for different pots of money, all of which you have to apply to Whitehall for. Lots of which remain unspent or underspent, you know. And so, you know, if it's interesting on in a Brexit context there were eu structural funds and they were often clunky to apply for but they were structural so you know whole regions applied for funds to you know fix university fix broadband fix road stuff now you've got this atomized lots and lots of little pots lots of local geographies applying for stuff none of it's very joined up and the result
0: is a sort of you know, uh, 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 just chaos. So, I mean, I mean, you know, you're, you're talking to a largely Irish audience. We know all about the structural funds. I think we wrote the book on how to get them. But I, I want to come back to this very idea because we want. Let's go broad, Peter. Let's go really, really broad, right? But what you're saying is a sort of a pork barrel politics has emerged, which is based every single local punter, every single local politician is trying to get a few quid for his own area or her own area, and then it's a, it's kind of policy by. Who's the last phone call? Who do you know? What's the most marginal seat? Uh, And there's no overall, as you'd say, coherence or vision.
3: That's that's a mild, you know, and I've mildly caricatured it. But what you have had as a function of, you know, we took back control after Brexit. And it turns out that taking back control is hard work. You remove a lot of those structures, like EU structural funds, like the regulation that comes down the pipe, which business wants because it creates... You know, it creates hard work for business to comply with it. But when you've complied with it and it's access to 28 markets, you know, and it comes in a controlled way down the pipe, what we've done is swap that for taking back control. But actually, it turns out that creating a UK version of structural funds is complicated. You need, you know, in a really nuts and bolts level, the delivery of it is complicated. You need the right officials in the right place, the right structures. If you read the rubric for the replacement for structural funds, actually it's almost as bossy as the EU one about what
0: logo you put on and when you get to apply for it and et cetera, et cetera. But of course it is, Peter, because you know what I mean? Like when, when somebody, if you think about the transaction, when somebody's giving you money, it always comes with bells and whistles. And some of the bells and whistles, as you say, are kind of bragging rights to say, I gave you this, right? You know, I am the sort of the financier. So the, the notion that it was going to be easy is part of, I suppose, what we're going to go back to the book, is that there's so much where said it's going to be easy. That's the whole Brexit prompts. Don't worry, it'll be fine. It'll be grand. We'll sort it all out. And what you're doing in the book and your in your work is pointing out. Hold on a second, guys. This is this is hard.
3: It is, and you look at. So we're we're outside the EU state aid policy. So let's have a UK, you know, competition policy. And actually, you know. It's, it's supposed to be nimbler and light touch, but because it doesn't have any sort of certainty in it, it creates uncertainty for the grant-giving authorities. The same with regulating chemicals. So one of the kind of great themes of Brexit is we can be nimbler and we can regulate our medical devices or our clinical drug trials or our uh, 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 you know uh, car industry, chemical industry differently. But actually, you know what? It turns out that creating your own regulator, so the National Order Office, which is our sort of spending watchdog, does endless reports pointing out that these regulators are really struggling. They're struggling to hire staff. So the UK investment bank that replaced the European investment bank can't hire enough staff. It doesn't have a big enough cash pot. So the loans it's given out are not nearly as effective as they were under EIB. Now, you know, small forward 10 years. Who knows? Maybe, you know, go it alone. Britain will have come up with these with these brilliant regulators and will we'll be streets ahead of the European Union. But as things stand, it's been, you know, you know really hard work and and you know you can joke about the chaos, but for the for the businesses who are interacting with this, for people who are trying to convince their global parents to make investments in the u k you know the taking back control has been anything but actually what you've seen is the u k rule taking increasingly from Brussels, but you know the trouble is when you rule take you still have to show up at the border with a piece of paper shows that you're complying, right? The presumption of compliance that Precisely, Ireland yeah. has in, in a single market. So if an Irish company makes organic tea, you are presumed to have complied with the organics directive. So when you send your tea to Rome or, or yeah. Paris or Berlin, Wherever, it's yeah. compliant. We have the same organics directive that you do. It was transposed into UK law. It hasn't changed. But when I send my tea Rome or Paris or Berlin I have to come up with a wad of paperwork and then guess what it turns out that Italian German and French customs don't apply the directive equally across
0: the whole single market and, yeah. so and why should they know,
3: and, and well you know well in theory they ought to No no but I mean
0: it, when it, when 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 they're presented it's like it's like everything when we've always you know money like water flows on the path of least resistance and if you decide to put up resistance to it it'll go elsewhere and I think that's what's really happening with the Brexit but, idea. But that's a, exactly right. You know, Peter in Brighton is just margin.
3: It's not impossible to trade with Peter in Brighton rather than Pedro in Barcelona. But ultimately, if it's 5%, 10% more expensive and, and also less certain to trade with, then at the margin, what you find is it's just easier to trade with somebody in the single market. It's easier to invest in the single market. And I think one of the things that's not understood about Brexit, I try and bring out in the book, is about the the stock as well as the flow so there was a stock of relationships diplomatic commercial personal relationships that existed yeah. at the yeah, point yeah, of Brexit yeah. that you know okay. there's a lot of sunk cost in those relationships and and that sunk cost meant that they survived the question you've got is going forward if you're a british business and you've got carbon border adjustment mechanism which is the carbon tax the eu's bringing in on stuff coming across the border you've got supply chain diligence you've got plastic packaging you've got you know uh, uh, pay transparency directives etc If you're then looking at the next round of investment, the next round of contracts, what you start to see is it gets harder and harder for UK businesses to keep themselves integrated into EU supply chains, and that is net loss over time for UK economy.
0: Well, You're absolutely right, Peter. I mean, I've I've always said people do business with people they know. This is the interesting thing. I mean, business is a network. It's a network of relationships. People become friends. People, you know, I mean, down the years business and the flow of money and the flow of capital is one of the great gelling agents of relationships, good and bad. And as you say, I think I like that idea of the stock of relationships, the stock of networks, the stock of friends, the stock of access. You know, the fact you could, you could pick up a phone to some guy in France and start some girl in Germany and chat away. Now you're saying that's going to be all much more difficult and those relationships will, will atrophy. That's exactly right. They fray over
3: time. So that's why you know no one's fallen for clips. So the other day I was in a company in Warwick, that makes those whizzy machines. You see, whenever they do a clip about vaccines on the TV, there's those machines that fill 25 oh, yes, I know them. Yeah, yeah. test tubes. <laughs> and this guy makes these incredible machines. And he has clients in the big pharma industry. Well, where have the last big three investments been? They've been in Ireland, right? AstraZeneca, Eli Lilly, Pfizer, all invested in Ireland. And he said to me, look, the trouble is I'm getting calls from my Irish clients, my friends, saying, you know what, our US parents are saying where possible cut the uk out of the supply chain now wow. if i have if i have an amazing thing i might still buy it from the uk and remember machines like that they need servicing so then you get into movement of people right where people who can come over and do the servicing you know without needing permits and all the rest of it right so the, the common travel area is good for that but you really start to feel that that even this, you know that those relationships those embedded relationships aren't immune to the reality of gravity friction, the cost that is now there in trade.
0: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the, the central, central truism of economics is geography. This is something that we've never, never, and I was talking to Brexiteers, I always said, look, listen, guys, you trade with the fella and the girl beside you. That's how it starts, right? And you trade with people, and we know that one of the overwhelming impetuses for economic integration is proximity. So if you decide you're going to cut off your major, and this is a major point in the book, right? you're going to cut off 50% of your trade and you're going to figure out trade with people in Asia and people in Hong Kong and people in wherever, right? It's anti-economical at its very essence. And, and if you think about it for more than about three seconds, what they actually did
3: was a reverse trade deal. So trade deals yes. reduce barriers to trade. So what they did was a reverse trade deal with the market that takes 50% of UK trade by erecting barriers to trade, whilst at the same time lionizing the power of removing trade barriers by doing trade deals with the Asia-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP, and Australia and New Zealand, where we did a tiny fraction, a fraction of our trade relative to Europe. You know, if you think how back to front, upside down, how, you know...
0: How bonkers that is! How did anyone? How did anyone get away with suggesting well, that? Well, let's <laughs> let's focus on that Peter. How did anybody get away with it? Explain to me, you know, now with the benefit of, let's say, the, the seven or eight years, you know, evidence, discussions, analysis. What is the psychology of the whole thing? Because again, there's an increasing sense of, for Irish people, and I think a lot of a lot of n- non-British people of what's going on over there.
3: So, I think what's going on over there is what's going on all over the. Developed into post-industrial world, right? Which is that there isn't enough growth, there isn't enough productivity, and you see politics capitalizing on that in an unscrupulous way by just playing narratives, right? So you know whether it's Trump, make America great again, whether it's the you know the Fratelli d'Italia in 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 all over the world, right? So the UK was no different. So Brexit was essentially a kind of English nationalist revival project, right? It was make Britain great again. We would unshackle ourselves from the corpse. Of the
0: uh, yes, European the Union, yes, I remember, remember that. that? Word.
3: Yeah, and and of course that was all based on a load of completely upside down assumptions about the fact that membership of the single market we were shackled to. The corpse, actually, you know, I quote research in the book which shows that membership of the single market, of course, made the UK more productive. It made the UK you know, richer and wealthier. So after 40 years of negativity, four decades, essentially, you know, the last really kind of pro-European government, ironically, was the early Thatcher government. Nick Ridley wanted to make the Open Skies Agreement to break the monopoly of national airlines. So, so, you know, the narrative on Europe in the UK has been fundamentally negative. And so you can get, you know, it's what I call the dad's army version of foreign affairs, right? You know, with, you know, plucky Britain outside. And, And indeed, in the campaign, Boris Johnson talked openly, he said, you know, Hitler and Napoleon had tried to unify in Europe and the European Commission is another version of that. And so, you know, the frustration that people felt, you know, the left behind, that all the things that, you know, you see dividing every, almost, yeah, pretty much every, every country. If you look at the rise of the AFD in Germany, the yeah. alternative for Deutschland. It's not, this is not a UK problem. The trouble with the UK was we expressed it via Brexit this liberating vote, remember Nigel Farage, this, this, our independence day. And what it's done is it's backed the UK into a really tricky structural cul-de-sac, right? This can't be wished away by another election. You can't go and elect Keir Starmer and make it all go away. If you didn't like Donald Trump, you could throw him out the White House after a fashion and you could have another president, right? Let's see what happens next time around. But that's the nature of democracy. The trouble about Brexit is it puts the UK in a structural position vis-a-vis its largest trading partner and its neighbourhood market. So it's not just about trade, it's about people, it's about diplomacy, it's about security, it's about energy, et cetera, et cetera. And it just creates a permanent structural inequality between the UK and the EU and fixing that. You know, the second bit of the book is, you know, what went wrong with Brexit, but what we can do about it. Fixing that is going to be a long and drawn out process. Well, well,
0: well, let's talk about fixing it because nobody has any interest in a... Large, large country of significant historical and future power in this neck of the woods, finding itself, as you say, in a cul de sac, running up against brick walls. When I look at the British political landscape, no party is prepared to discuss Brexit really. They're trying to avoid it at all costs. It's like, Let's not go back to that thing. That was too divisive, right? How, in that context where the, where the political parties are afraid to touch this, how do you fix the litany of mistakes that you've just articulated? I mean, how do you go about fixing that?
3: It's very difficult to be clear. As you say, even the Liberal Democrats, which is the, the only really avowedly pro-EU rejoin in the fullness of time party, doesn't really want to go there. Right, it's a psychodrama for UK politics. It was incredible. It divided families, and it's you know it basically subs- you know consumed our politics for eight years. You know the Get Brexit Done election in 2019, lots of people who were Remainers voted for Boris Johnson just to make it go
0: away. That's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I mean to just accelerate this thing and let's 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 be done with it. Yeah, because they and of course one of the ironies is that then Johnson then did
3: the hardest possible Brexit trade deal which ensured that it didn't go away. So actually, you know, one of the bitter ironies is that actually Boris Johnson, I think, could have been a unifying figure, actually. You know, you think of him, you know, the mayor of London during the Olympics. He had the potential to actually reach across political divides, but he was so captured by the sovereignist right of the Tory party. He then did a Brexit deal that rubbed everybody's noses in it, that, that made the maximum amount of friction, right? And and that meant that it didn't go away. And the people advising him politically thought it was a good wedge issue to keep going on about Brexit. Now that Johnson's gone, everyone's trying to put it to bed. They're trying to not talk about it. Both parties don't want to join the customs union, don't want to have a be in the single market. And that, of course, limits what you can do. The Labour Party, to be clear, I think does want, after an election, presuming it wins it, to try and rebuild relations with Europe, to end this very zero-sum approach. And you've seen the beginnings of that, even with Rishi Sunak, right, the Windsor Framework, credit where it's due was a, a brave political step by Sunak. And he's done after a fashion the horizon negotiation. There've been some collaborations on on the North uh, Sea uh, cooperation on wind power, et cetera. You're starting to see within reason that you know the rebuilding of relationships. Sunak and von der Leyen have good relationships. But I think Labour will take it much further. Whether or not that actually translates into removing those structural frictions that we're talking about for industry and what have you I have my doubts. I think you know if we have to think of this from a European perspective, they've got a floor under the Northern Ireland issue with the Winds of framework. They've got a TCA, a Trade and Cooperation Agreement, which you know Europe runs a trade surplus in goods with the with the UK. It suits them fairly fine, right? It, uh, you know, I think they'd like some stuff on mobility. I think you know there's good reasons why the uh, Labour should link the carbon markets of the of the EU and the UK. And I think there's things that the Labour Party can do to actually you know, show that they want, you know, to your point at the beginning, a neighbourhood relationship, Yeah, right? We don't, you know, that we want to be part of the neighbourhood. You know, we're divorced, but guess what? We're still living in the same street. So let's stop throwing bricks through the window the whole time. Let's just at least try and get
0: on. Well, it's it's an interesting thing. I, I do know from having spoken to old friends of mine who ended up on the European Commission side of the negotiations, I asked them in a, in a, in a bar in Brussels about 2 years ago, you know, what happens if the Brits turn around and say, oh, do you know what? It was all a big mistake and we'd like to come back into the club." And one of the lead negotiators she said to me, "Not while I'm around, David." She said there's an entire generation of European bureaucrats who dealt with the negotiation with the UK and they'll never deal with the UK again in a meaningful way." And it was really quite interesting. I mean, this was completely kind of, you know, chit-chat, but you could sense that the experience of dealing with the likes of Frost and Johnson was so traumatic for the European side, as well as for your own bureaucrats in Whitehall, who I know were very frustrated, that they're saying, look, however frozen the conflict is, we might leave it frozen because our side don't have anything to gain from going back in, which is quite, quite damning because what you rarely hear in the English-speaking press is the European Commission side of the story, at that, that, that granular level, at that personal level.
3: No, and a point I, you know, I make in the book is actually even, you know, let's see what sort of majority Keir Starmer gets. And, by the way,
0: is he set for a majority? Is that kind of pretty much set in stone now?
3: Well, you know, if you look at the polls, he's 20 points ahead. We're probably a year out from an election. I don't think, I you know, never say never, right? He's not a brilliantly charismatic politician. You know, the Tories are going to throw everything at it. But all things being equal, I think what it what I would say is no one's going to work with the Tories. So even if he doesn't get a majority, it's almost certain that he will end up forming a government, in my view. Uh, okay, you know, it, yeah, it, it some seems coalition. Like, it seems like the Tories, well, even a minority government with a confidence and supply, you know, the Lib Dems probably got so battered after they went into coalition with the Tories, it's not clear the Lib Dems would want to go into a coalition. But some, some government, I think, the even money would be on a smallish majority, but some of the polls show a majority of 150 seats. But it's worth remembering, if he doesn't win, say, 20 seats in Scotland, he needs a bigger swing than Blair got in 97 in England to get a majority. So the wow, swings so needed- that's how
0: entrenched the Tories are.
3: Yeah, it, the swings need, needed are, are large, but then UK politics is incredibly volatile. There's a lot of fatigue with the Tories. The difference between, you know, a swing of, Seven or eight percent versus nine, ten percent. If you get those two or three extra points, you get masses more seats, right? Because a load of seats just go like dominoes in a first past the post system. So the spectrum of possibility is very huge. But the even money must be on Sir Keir Starmer the next prime minister. But to your point about EU negotiations, if you're looking, this is true of investors as well. At the UK, and you're, you know, you've got Keir there doing his thing, trying to rebuild relationships. Your European Commission official the back of their mind, they're thinking, whatever castle I build with this guy, is UK politics so structurally damaged that actually, you know, we could end up with another Tory government in five years' time? And then we're back to square one. Now, is UK politics capable of being a stable partner? And I think, you know, that's the long-term damage. Personalities come and go, Frost and Johnson, all of that. But actually, the suspicion that UK... Politics may literally be incapable of long lasting stable relationships, will I think be a limiting factor on the renegotiation of the relationship, which I think is going to come.
0: Peter, can I just ask you to conclude on that? Because that's a fascinating place to go at the end that UK politics, as presently constellated with the economic problems, with the constitutional issues, with the inequalities, all the stuff we know, right? That it may well be. Incapable of promising stability over a decade or two. Is, th- is that a conclusion that we can take away from this conversation?
3: It's been a very, very turbulent seven or eight years, right? You know, we had a very, re- we had a referendum that was on the most divisive subject in UK politics. It was very narrowly won. It then split the Tory party. It, you know, we've had, you know, five prime ministers in five years. Right. So the question is, is that you know, as you say, a permanent state of affairs, or can we come out of it? And I, I just think that you know, we should be able to come out of it. Right. You know, the UK is not a basket case. The narrative is super negative at the moment, but it is going to take time, and it is going to take political courage in an environment where there's no money. Right. You know, interest rates are high. It's hot. It's expensive for governments to borrow money now compared to what it was. And we've had, a, you know, we had a decade of austerity. So, you know, UK, all the things you need to do, those structural reforms, right, on planning and land and skills reform, all of that good stuff you need to do, you know, requires a stable, patient political environment. Now, a Starmer with a 150-seat majority nailed on for two terms, maybe. a Starmer with a minority government, small majority, uh, you know, a Tory party barking down its neck, Tack to the right etc
0: tougher it's the it's the sense of the opposition to any constructive dialogue that interests me i think there is a Part of the
3: Brexit debate that is still not prepared to move on to constructive discussions about how you actually fix the problem, because you're still not at the stage where you're admitting the problem. So here I'm at the Tory Party conference in Manchester, and a big chunk of the audience is basically in denial that Brexit's caused any problem. So, you know, the sort Keir Starmer went to Paris last week, and the front page of the Telegraph was Keir Starmer prepares to betray Brexit. Well, you know, actually, if you look at the polls, people who voted Tory in 2019 a clear plurality of them now believe that Brexit made the cost of living crisis worse made the economy weaker made trade uh, worse than it otherwise would have been but but even so the core tory faithful are still in this very defensive crouch they don't actually want to talk about what to do about it because they're still saying it's all gone brilliantly you know you know and that's not actually where the polls show the united kingdom is but it is where the, the 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 true Brexiteers still are,
0: but it's it's amazing. It's it's as it's as if you know Britain has been kidnapped by this bunch of really slightly out of touch, right of centre, extreme right of centre nationalists, which is not really reflecting what the average punter thinks.
3: No, and you know it is an interesting one. So when the Windsor Framework was done on Northern Ireland, there was a lot of worry about whether or not the kind of super-sovereignist Tory right, David Frost, Bill Cash, et cetera, we're going to bring the House down like they did when Theresa May was there. But you know what? It passed. Yeah. You know, the, the bomb never went off. And and I think... Not a good expression okay. for Northern Ireland, by the way. Well, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. But but you, you get my point that actually, you know, they did confront the hard right of the party and the House didn't come down. But the conservative press, the Daily Mail, the Daily Telegraph, et cetera, are still knee-jerk, you know, the Labour leader goes to Europe, to the Hague and Paris, and there's still a kind of surrender betrayal narrative,
0: right? This is it's back very, to your dad's deep, army idea.
3: It, it is very, very deep seated. You know, it amazes me that, you know, when there was a whole row in the UK about this thing called the retained EU law bill, this plan under Jacob Rees-Mogg to rip up all, all EU-based law in the UK in a year, which obviously sent business absolutely nuts. You know, when that whole thing was going on, the Sun was back writing stories about Bendy Bananas. Remember Bendy Bananas? You know, right? Like, like, how is it that twenty something years on, the knee jerk, you know, when the editorial conference of the Sun starts, what should we, Oh, Bendy Bananas, yeah, Bendy Bananas. You know, <laughs> like, 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 that is the, you know, that is how far the discourse has not moved on. And, you know, and of course, you know, that's the, you know, the reason I wrote my little book is that that the the the, the interests and the voices of those people who actually move things and make things. You know, fifty percent of UK. Exports are manufactured goods. I know you make stuff, right? <laughs> right? And and manuf- companies that export are more resilient. They can they can weather cy- you know economic cycles in their domestic markets because they have overseas markets. They pay better. They're better, more productive, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, none of that has really landed
0: in the discussion about Brexit. Peter Foster, the book is What Went Wrong with Brexit and What We Can Do About It. Listen, lovely to talk to you, and hopefully we'll chat to you again. Yeah, my
1: pleasure. I look forward to that. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort
2: You, the way peter described britain britain in 2023 it was like an episode of Yesminster. it really was <laughs>
0: Except in Yes Minister there was a little bit of competence in, in Whitehall. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he's talking well, now the Whitehall boffins. He said the Whitehall boffins have even said like, we, this is all bonkers.
2: Yeah, we we need Sir Humphrey back. Yeah. It's like if there was a nation that could be a Dunning-Kruger. <laughs> but something from Dunning-Kruger. <laughs> where the, where Kruger, where they're
0: truly incompetent yes. overestimate their competence. Yeah, yeah it's, but it's again what Peter's saying it's not the nation. That's the interesting thing. They've been hijacked by a small coterie of, you know, Brexit ultras.
2: Yeah. Okay, you'd yeah, imagine Yeah, right? yeah, yeah.
0: Who are, you know, maximalists when it comes to sovereignty and independence. And it's a bizarre situation. As New Order would say, it's the bizarre love triangle, right? (laughs) You have the Tories, you have Brexit, and you have Europe. This is the bizarre love triangle.
2: I like what you did there, (laughs) Mike. You know what I mean?
0: But what is fascinating for me is the idea of a nation without a plan. Without a plan. And I think you might have remembered a couple of years ago, we got a guy called Robert Lind, who's a very brilliant uh, British economist. Yep. Yep. Almost, and he was saying, like, he said, look, look over the 30 or 40 years, what has been the British plan? And he said, since Thatcher, it has been this idea. We will expand the services and financial services in particular sector of London. Mm. That will throw off, and basically as an international cosmopolitan city. yeah. So advertising, services, marketing, finance, insurance, banking, all those yeah, things, yeah. right? that will throw off huge surpluses because it's a highly, highly profitable business, right? With those surpluses, we will pay for the degraded industrial regions of the north, yeah. Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. And that will be our model. And that's really what they did for, you know, I'd say 20 or 25 years, 30 years. Yeah. But that was predicated on London being open to capital, to movement, to trade, yeah. to talent, all that stuff. Which, which it was. Which it was. But Brexit shuts that down. Yeah. But it didn't even work then, by the way. But it, it worked in a way that they generated enough fiscal surpluses, tax yeah. surpluses, yeah, 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 yeah. to actually dole out that money to the regions. And that was basically the English model, the British model. And what Robert says, look, you know, Brexit destroys that model because you destroy the essential openness of London. Mm. And then, of course, what you will get over time is that model will dissipate as business goes elsewhere. And then he was saying that Britain has to come up with a new model. And that, I suppose, is what Peter's saying as well. In this interregnum between the old Britain, whether you liked it or not, but it was was upheld by Tories and Labour, Mm. Tony Blair upheld it as well, to the new Britain, it's this interregnum, this transition period, which is creating all the doubt, all the neurosis, all the political instability, and all the lack of any vision that has been characterized now by but by their political, you know, by, by their whole political infrastructure.
2: But but also like things like when they're scrapped the high-speed link to Manchester up to the north, which you know, the whole idea of that was to feed into this leveling up phrase. Yeah, the, the
0: North would be part yeah, of the. And now they're
2: by not extending it, they're going to cut it off. And then the, the stuff with they rolling back the, the green agenda and all that kind of stuff. It's stuff like that that won't help the stability of Britain politically or financially.
0: Well, you know. I think you're absolutely right. I, I think I think that what the Tory party have to do is slay the ghost of Thatcher. So Everywhere is this weird, weird ghost of Margaret Thatcher that infects, like Banquo's ghost in Macbeth, John. Imagine, so Lady Macbeth is over here. Macbeth himself is neurotic about what he has done, right? Killing Malcolm, killing the king, and killing Banquo. And there he is, and just as he's about to actually come to terms with that thing, and he's dealing with this rather ambitious wife called Lady Macbeth, right? And then the ghost of Banquo comes in to remind him of what he's done. And she's like the ghost to remind Sunak and whatever of the great years, the great past years. And they have to they have to expunge this ghost, and they still haven't done that. So you know, when I when I see like it's it's true, John. I like know, it. I like it. The ghost of Banquo. See, I was paying attention in, in Intercert Macbeth for the intercert. I did
2: King Lear. <laughs> anyway, speaking of King bubble, Lear,
0: bubble, toil, and trouble. Well, we spoke about bubbles the other day, and I hear we're back. No, but John, forget Bangkok for a second and Shakespeare, right? We'll come back to that in a while. Okay, the economics of Shakespeare, we might actually do that. That'd be the economics of the time of Shakespeare is fascinating. It's really, really fascinating what was happening in England at the time. But enough, we will come back. That, to might, that. Be might be a Christmas special. It might be a Christmas might be exactly. The <laughs> bumper remember. issue. Exactly. But let, let's look, let's draw back. What we have is our closest neighbor. We have no vested interest in anything except England right in itself. So you know, what Peter's talking about there is a vista, which I hadn't really considered, which is that the UK remains in political and therefore economic turmoil for another decade. Now, if that is the outlook for the UK, there's no way they're back to Europe. There's no way they deal with their productivity issues, which is the fact The underlying fact Mm. is they are Mm. unproductive. There's no way they deal with the sectoral issues, which is that one sector is favoured over another. There's no way they deal with the regional issues, which is the fact that North is much poorer than the South. And then, of course, we've got the constitutional issue. Scotland, Northern Ireland. How does that all come into play? So it's amazing when you think about it. This is a country that has been torn apart by its own government, Mm. by its own political system, by the people who were voted in to actually create unity are destroying it. As Ian Curtis would say, John, Gov will tear us apart. (laughs) See you next week.